0: Coming up on Studios America, lots going on with the Supreme Court right now. So, of course, I had to bring in Newsweek's Josh Hammer to help sort it all out. The mayor of Chicago is only doing interviews with reporters of color from now on, which seems a little bit, you know, race. We'll get into that as well in a minute. And the left is continuing to push for their partisan investigation into the Capitol riots. Let's see what they're really trying to pull on us as we do the January 6th Commission. Do, does America. You know, some days just sort of jump off the calendar at you. You know, there's certain days that almost have a definition. Like you hear a certain day on the calendar and you know exactly what it means the second I say it. If I say December 25th, you know right off the bat, we're talking Christmas, right? Or I would also accept Uh, The day that they run 24 hours of a Christmas story, which is just as important in some ways. Uh, If I were to say July 4th, right, there's there's, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We're talking about our national independence. If I were to say February 14th, if you're a terrible boyfriend, you might not remember this, but it's Valentine's Day. It's the day you get to spend your hard earned cash on stuff she's going to throw out in just a few minutes. Uh, January 1st. Right. New Year's Day and and New Year's Day, in a way, kind of gets two days, because if I say December 31st, you're going to know it's New Year's Eve. Uh, So you have the day that you're drinking and then the day you get hungover. Uh, If I were to say October 31st, it's the day you get murdered by Michael Myers. We all know this, right? It immediately jumps off the calendar at you. How about because you get kind of the holidays, right? There's a good collection of holidays that jump off the calendar. What about the the days you get intoxicated? There's a whole slew of these. We have March 17th, of course, St. Patrick's Day. You're getting hammered. How about May 5th? It's Cinco de Mayo. You're getting hammered. Uh, How about April 20th? That's 420. You're not getting hammered in the same way, but you're still very, very intoxicated. Or how about the day you get most intoxicated? April 15th. There's a bunch of days on the calendar that are sort of just like quirky days. They're not really holidays. They're not really days you're getting hammered. They're like April 1st, for example. Everyone knows you're going to say April Fool's Day. It's the day that all these corporations come together to do really dumb jokes that nobody believes. And pl- please let that go away. Please. How about uh, February 29th? Or say that. I mean, the first thing you're thinking, right? Leap year. And if you're born on February 29th, you are the youngest person. Uh, I mean, you <laughs> You look really old for your age, because you know, you've been through 40 years, you're really only 10, in a way. Um, March 14th, 3.14, Pi Day. If you're a nerd, you know all about that. And if you're a nerd, you also know about the 4th of May, or May the 4th be with you. Star Wars Day, okay? And then of course you obviously have the greatest day of all time, February 4th, 2018. If you don't know what that is, uh, just look it up and click on the first link. You'll find it. And of course, the day I better mention right now or I get divorced, May 20th. Today, my wife's birthday. Go tell her at her Instagram page that I said this so that she knows because obviously she's not watching the show right now. Make sure she knows I'm a good husband. I remember February 14th. Lots of reasons why dates turn into self-explanatory events. There's a lot of them. But perhaps the most exclusive of this club happens to be dates that are inspired by big news events. Now, obviously, if you go way back, things like July 4th, December 25th, uh, you know, they're focused on pretty important events. But I'm talking about relatively recent ones. Let me give you a couple. If I say to you, December 7th, right away, you're going to think 1941, Pearl Harbor. Another one, if I say September 11th. You know exactly what I mean when I say that, 2001. You don't think, oh, September 11th, 2001, that's the day Glitter by Mariah Carey came out. Although, that is the day Glitter by Mariah Carey came out. In a way, there were two disasters on that tragic Tuesday morning. The reason I am leading the show with several minutes of calendar talk is that we all need to realize what the left is attempting to do right now. They are trying to gain January 6th entry into this exclusive club. And they are well on their way of doing it. Listen to how Chuck Schumer described January 6th. There needs to be a thorough and honest accounting of what took place on January 6th. The greatest attempt at insurrection since the Civil War. <laughs> the greatest attempt at insurrection since the Civil War really was it, Chuck? Maybe we'll come back to that here in a second. But you've seen places like CNN try to brand the election controversy as the big lie as it ties to January 6th. By the way, I kind of thought that, you know, the big lie had another meaning as it ties to the Holocaust. I don't know why we're muddying those waters. I'm not sure why the media is doing that. It's very strange, but for a hint, watch their coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Anyway, the ultimate branding of an event to sear it into the minds of Americans is by basically overtaking a date. The former leader of Turkmenistan, the great Turkmenbashi, once changed the name of one of the months of the year to his mom's name. That's a solid Mother's Day gift, which is another date that I don't really remember what it is. Uh, The greatest single book promotion of all time, by the way, Turkmenbashi, also changed another month of the year to the name of his book. We will miss you. I really will. Long gone. This is what really is behind the January 6th commission. This is not an effort to find out what really happened on January 6th. This is an effort to target the former president specifically and Republicans more broadly. Now, let me be perfectly clear. The QAnon riots at the Capitol were a national disgrace a lot of people on the right point out that it was a small percentage of the crowd that was actually assaulting police officers and violently entering the Capitol. And that's true. But the people responsible for that crap should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. The even smaller percentage that was trying to attack politicians and who actually planned to take over the Capitol in advance should go to prison for a long time. And I will tell you, If God himself could come down and put together some sort of neutral commission that would actually dig into the details of that day, I would be very interested in the results. For example, I want to know why it took so long to get the National Guard out there. I want to know why the planning for security was so terrible. I want a security and evacuation plan constructed for the future so that will never happen again. But that is very much not what the left wants. They want this to be a date that lives in infamy for people who want lower taxes. Let me give you another date. June 14th. Why don't you remember that date? What was it that Schumer said? Again, let's remember that Chuck Schumer clip for just a second. There needs to be a thorough and honest accounting Mm. of what took place on January 6th. Okay. The greatest attempted insurrection since the Civil War. Mm, I would argue that a better example might be June 14th, June 14th, 2017. That was the day a Bernie Sanders campaign volunteer tried to execute about 10% of all elected Republicans in Washington, D.C., but we don't remember June 14th. It's a footnote. Mention an event like that, and a Democrat will roll their eyes. Yet, undoubtedly, that was a far more serious threat to our elected officials than anything that happened on January 6, 2021. And what about the riots last summer? Yes, I know our Capitol elicits different emotions because of the imagery involved, but far more property was destroyed. Far more federal buildings were damaged. Far more people people were killed. I would like to know why prominent Democrats cheered on those events and raised money to bail out the criminals involved in them. For those saying I'm minimizing January 6th, I'm not. I despised that day. I'm just right-sizing the other events the media has been minimizing, justifying, and at times celebrating so after today, I'm referring to the QAnon riots at the Capitol. I'm not doing January 6 anymore. I'm not calling them January 6th. I'm not referring to them as that date. I might not be able to turn the tides of insanity myself, but at least I don't have to help them. I'm helping out uh, someone with a real estate transaction right now. And I will tell you, it is bonkers out there. <laughs> I mean, the market's going crazy. If you're selling a house right now, you're, you're simultaneously thrilled and horrified <laughs> because uh, the prices coming in are pretty good. But I will say this, uh, it seems very overheated. I'm a little nervous, but here's the point. When you have a moment like this, it's incredibly important to take advantage of it in the best way possible. Real Estate Agents I Trust is Glenn's company. He started it a while ago because he had problems with real estate agents that he was dealing with and he he wanted to find a way to kind of screen real estate agents so you weren't just guessing at who the best one was. Real Estate Agents I Trust helps you in this huge moment, especially in a market like this, this isn't even a normal time. It's, it, realestateagentsitrust.com is more important than ever. You have to take advantage of this moment, whether it's selling a house and getting the most money, or it might be if you're buying. I will tell you this, you know, if you've ever sold a house, it's not always the highest price that wins. It's sometimes someone who comes in and, and gives the buyer what, uh, a reliable offer. I know it might not be the highest one, but maybe it's one that's more cash than the others or more of a deposit than the others or better terms. You can find all that stuff out when you have a real estate agent that understands the market. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Let's welcome back to the program, Josh Hammer. He's the opinion editor at Newsweek and co-host of the debate podcast. Josh, how's it going, my man?
1: Stu, always good to see you, and I appreciate the plug for the new podcast as well.
0: Yeah, pretty exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Sure. Yeah. So uh, we we at Newsweek just launched a brand new podcast um, a little over a month ago. It's called The Debate, which is more or less self explanatory. Uh, my co host Badia Ungar Sargan and I we bring on two people to hash out a topic, and we're not avoiding the the hard stuff. We uh, we did reparations. We had uh, critical race theory. We did the recent uh, flare up uh, in Israel with the Palestinians. So we're tackling the hard issues head on, and you know, would encourage uh, the listeners and viewers to check it out.
0: Well, we want to stay away from such divisive topics. So let's talk about abortion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this should be totally easy. Um, th- there's this news out with the Supreme Court going to uh, pick up this, uh, this, this case uh, about the Mississippi law where they're, go- they're trying to restrict um, uh, abortions uh, anything before 15 weeks. Can you kind of give us, first of all, how this is all going to roll out? When are we going to know the answer to this and how important is this?
1: sure so um the short answer is it's it's a big deal uh you know uh to uh to quote uh the oft the the oft loose lipped current president back when he was the vice president it's a big effing deal actually (laughs) um um, so here's what happened so the same mississippi passed a fairly straightforward 15 week abortion ban now there are limited exceptions for after 15 weeks for severe fetal abnormalities for the life of the mother um things like that now it's worth kind of quickly pointing out that Mississippi's law they passed is actually not the most draconian or the strictest uh, pro-life law. You know, uh, there have been six-week bans, eight-week bans. Uh, Alabama, of course, 2019 generated national news for effectively abolishing abortion in the state. The upshot, though, is that in the current state of uh, abortion jurisprudence in the United States after Roe v.ersus Wade in 1973, and in particular after Planned Parenthood v.ersus Casey in 1992, which uh, to this day is kind of effectively the, quote, law of the land as far as abortion is concerned, All of this is going to get invalidated at a lower court level. And sure enough, that's what happened here Uh, at the Fifth Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, uh, which is the court that I clerked on. uh, In fact, my former boss, uh, Judge Jim Ho, was actually on the panel that had this very case. Uh, judge Ho uh, concurred in the judgment because uh, as a lower court judge, his hands were tied. He was not able to uh, to rule for Mississippi, but he did write separately. But um, long story short here, Mississippi immediately appealed to the Supreme Court and it, it sat on what kind of lawyers call the shadow docket for a long time, like a shockingly long time. It, it was 13 weeks, I think, where every week the justices, they go to conference to kind of debate whether to grant cert and take up a new case. It sat there for an unusually long time and finally, they granted cert this week. So uh, what that means is uh, it's a so-called rule of four. You need four justices to agree to hear a case. So um, this is going to be the biggest abortion case that the United States Supreme Court is going to hear since Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, in 2016, there was a case at Texas, uh, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead, which was the last pretty big abortion case. But this is bigger, um, and it's bigger because the legal question that the court is addressing is— is whether, quote, all pre-viability abortions are unconstitutional. That is a fairly direct challenge to Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, so whether the court rules narrowly or broadly or doesn't rule at all, um, they're going to have to address Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So it's great news for pro-lifers. I, I would not encourage everyone to kind of get their hopes up per se right now, but the fact they granted here hearing the case is a big deal and it's good news.
0: Yeah, I've been telling people that this is like uh, the excitement that I have before a new Star Wars movie, very excited, but actually expecting it to be a disaster when I walk out of the theater. Uh, that's kind of what I'm expecting here. I'm very nervous as to how this will go, but I think you have to take a shot, right? You got a six-three court in theory, which I would honestly argue is a five-four court, maybe. Um, and yeah, you, you got to This has been something that has been building up for a very long time in the conservative movement. this is the right time to try it, right? I mean, who knows how long, you know, Clarence Thomas is going to be around and want to stick on the court.
1: 100%. Um, It's a 6-3 Republican nominee majority. Now, I kind of, in a sense, wish—not that the case were heard 10 years ago, but I wish we had the John Roberts of 10 years ago. Mm. It's worth remembering um, early—because he he, was—John Roberts came onto the court in 2005, uh, if I recall. In 2007, so shortly thereafter, there was actually a major abortion case, Gonzalez versus Carhart, where uh, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of Congress's partial birth abortion ban. It was a federal ban of partial, uh, partial birth abortions. Anthony Kennedy, of all people, wrote the majority opinion for the court in that case and John Roberts joined the majority so he actually has been um, and he did dissent in the, in, in the uh, whole women's health versus Heller said case in 2016 that I mentioned. Having said that, um, yeah, he really has kind of gone to the other team, it seems, so to speak, over the past few years. Um, he kind of flip flopped on the exact issue in Hellerstead. That was the June medical case from last term, where he had this uh, too cute by half uh, concurrence, where, where he claimed that to justify his total flip flop in four years on starry decisis on precedent grounds, which totally making a hash of that doctrine. But we'll save that rant for another day. <laughs> so I, I so, so I agree with you. You start, we start. You start with five justices now. Here's the thing. They're not gonna hear this case until next term. So the next term starts in October. We can fairly predict that they're not gonna rule on this case in all likelihood until June 2022, because the court tends to save its most high profile cases until June, until the end of the term. And abortion is nothing if not a high profile issue, of course. The question then is whether the left in what is going to be an unprecedented PR campaign, an intimidation tactics campaign, a disinformation campaign, Biden, Kamala Harris, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, they are all going to exert immense pressure. Uh, The newspapers, uh, Hollywood, they're going to really, really, really try to exert a ton of pressure on on, on Brett Kavanaugh above all else, maybe Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch. And um, like used to, um, we've been burned so many times before on this issue that I, I am trying not to get my hopes up here. Um, but, uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh is really the one to watch for. Um, he, he really is the one who I am very, very, very scared of, to be honest with you on this issue.
0: <laughs> Me too. There was a, we, we talked about the profile in the Atlantic, uh, by McKay Coppins of, uh, Kavanaugh that came out uh, this week or last week. And it just basically made him sound like he's Roberts all over again. Uh, it was quite terrifying. And I'll point out your, your, your timeline there, June, 2022, we're talking about five months before the midterm election. Imagine the fever pitch the media is gonna be at. Imagine everyone out there in their handmaid's tail outfits talking about this uh, this ruling that is upcoming on the issue of abortion. It's going to be uh, absolutely crazy. Um, one, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I, I, I know you'll know this better than anybody. You mentioned that it's not the most restrictive law in America. Texas just passed a six-week ban uh, pretty much here as well uh, recently. Um, but it's also not, the most uh, lenient like a lot of states have 20 week bans and that was p- kind of the mainstream republican position at least for a while go after something that is clear at that uh, viability is after that point but it is it still gives you the biggest range in the lead up before viability tons of republican states have gone after the 20 week is there any significance in picking mississippi that's kind of in the middle
1: so it's a great question. Um, I think the short answer is honestly not necessarily so, no. um, uh, because the current standard is viability. Um, so uh, you know between viability and conception, they really could have picked anything here, right? I mean, if they're going to undermine the viability standard, um, so, so so look, there were there are really three outcomes here. There are three possible outcomes for how the court can rule in Dobbs versus Jackson um, Women's Health. They can obviously rule, um, you know, uh, entirely on the side of Roe and Casey and say that Mississippi's law is unconstitutional. That obviously would be um, the worst possible outcome for pro-lifers. The other extreme of the spectrum, uh, the best possible outcome is, of course, a clean overruling of Roe and Casey, uh, which basically kind of uh, kicks abortion regulation uh, in toto in in its totality back to the states to regulate as they so choose. And then there's kind of this this murky middle ground, which is if I were a betting man, that's probably where I put my chips. And I do think the most likely outcome here, uh, and I, I'm kind of just like waiting to be let down, even as I let the words out of my mouth. <laughs> I, I, think the most, I, think, I think the most likely outcome is probably a very slight on the edge undermining of the Casey standard. The problem here is that, as you and I and every other pro-lifer knows, do there is no intellectually honest position here um, between kind of conception and birth. I mean, viability is the closest you can come, and uh, you know, I, I think I agree with. Other pro-lifers and saying it's not a particularly honest position for various reasons. But what the court, I predict, will do is they will purport to find some sort of quasi-principled line between viability and birth, uh, whether it's kind of fetal pain, fetal heartbeat. Uh, they'll find something, right? Uh, the, mm-hmm. the development of, of the brain, of limbs. Um, And I think they'll probably define that as the new line. That's my best guess. Um, But um, I I, I hope I'm wrong and that it's a clean over ruling of Rowan Casey. But I think anyone trying to tell you with confidence that that's going to be the result, um, you know, they've got a they've got some oceanfront property to sell you in Arizona. Right. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. David Harsani had a a point on this uh, earlier this week for National Review, where he pointed out, like, if the viability thing is such it's such a scam, it's like. If we now have medical technology that makes a baby viable at 21 weeks, what about those people uh, that were aborted at 21 weeks in the past? Were those now? Do we convert those all to crimes? How does this work? If a person is a person and can be a person at some point, this is life, clearly. And I just I feel like you know you're right. This sort of is a it's a way to avoid making the decision. And I feel like the court does that too often. Roberts, a lot of times, I feel like is at the center of that. One thing I do worry about is a 5-4 decision that might be more broad, and then they bring in Roberts to make it 6-3, and he narrows it. He seems to do that type of thing all the time.
1: You are totally right to worry about that. Um, In fact, a a, a very smart lawyer friend of mine said that exact same thing to me yesterday. (laughs) Um, So so, uh, you're thinking along the right lines here, Stu. Um, So what's interesting is, um, so here's my best guess. If I'm just looking at the court, if I'm just kind of pegging where I think everyone is on this issue... It is worth noting that Clarence Thomas is the only justice on the court who, in formal judicial opinion, has called for Rowan Casey to be overruled. Um, even Sam Alito, which everyone views as kind of a surefire person who would vote that way, has not actually put that in writing. Nor has yeah. Neil Gorsuch, who kind of shares Clarence Thomas's views on stare decisis. Um, nor has obviously Amy Coney Barrett in her extremely short time on the court, even though people you know, um, uh, usually associate her with the pro-life position. So. If I were kind of looking justice by justice by justice, et cetera, just down the line here, obviously the three de- Democratic appointees, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, um, would vote to hold Mississippi's law unconstitutional. There is no doubt in the world about that. Uh-huh. I think the, the, the four aforementioned Republican justices, uh, Republican nominated justices, excuse me, um, so that that's Gorsuch, Alito, Barrett and Thomas. I think if I were a betting man, we're probably all all vote to overturn Roe and Casey. If gun to the head, they are forced to put their money where the math is. I do. I do think that I'm not fully confident in Gorsuch, but I think he probably would. So I think he probably had those four votes. Roberts and Kavanaugh then, here's what happens. If Roberts then decides to join with the liberal bloc, then you get this kind of weird 5-4 arrangement where Brett Kavanaugh could try to write a narrow opinion, but you have four justices who would go further than him. That is a very kind of awkward lineup, and it's not clear what the actual legal holding, let's say, of the case would be. So I think I, I actually, what I'm, the point of building up towards here is I actually think it is a serious concern, what you just said. In fact, I think it is a, a, a non-negligible, like a very plausible possibility that Chief Justice Roberts joins Kavanaugh just to kind of give him some more ammunition in writing kind of a narrow court, because it kind of gets right to Roberts' wheelhouse, right? It's a narrow holding. It's the institutional integrity of the court. He can look to his you know, friends at The New York Times and Washington Post editorial board and say oh my hands were tied we had six republican nominees they're going to vote this way i tried to narrow it so i don't think that's a crazy outcome at all i think it's more likely he probably will just go straight for the liberal block, but it's a serious possibility what you're saying oh,
0: that's terrifying uh, josh do you have like five more minutes can we can you hang on for a second sure okay uh, josh hammer uh, opinion editor editor of newsweek a co-host of the new debate part the debate prop podcast i want to come back with more uh, with josh i want to talk about israel here in just a second Just just too much to get to with Josh Hammer, who joins us again uh, from Newsweek. Uh, the other big story of this week and you know, the last couple thousand years is Israel. <laughs> um, Josh, you know, I think if I was watching the media as a normal consumer, my belief would be that there something happened to start uh, a little back and forth between Israel and the Palestinians. And since that initial something, maybe a rocket or something from Hamas, there's been a nonstop, brutal, unjustified series of attacks on civilians uh, that are Palestinian. I I think if I'm just watching the news, that's what I think. Do you think that's what the American people are taking from the story?
1: Stu, honestly, sometimes I don't even want to think about what the media in America is taking from the story. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm proud to edit one of the only mainstream media op-ed pages that is giving this thing a fair hearing. Um, you know, at, at News we we publish all sides of the story. That's kind of the whole purpose of the debate. Um, but we're publishing obviously a lot of content that I think is that I think is giving the true, accurate perspective here. Um, look, uh, just, to, just to drive home the obvious point here, and it's not like your your viewers need to hear this. Hamas is an internationally recognized terrorist outfit. Mm-hmm. It is a Muslim Brotherhood offshoot. It is bankrolled by the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is the world's number one state sponsor of terrorism, obviously. Um, and Hamas is indiscriminately raining deadly, lethal rockets at Israel. And it's not just aiming at Jews, by the way. They, they, they killed an Indian national. Uh, Thai nationals were actually just killed recently. They've, they've killed uh, Israeli Arabs. Hamas routinely, of course, their rockets fall in Gaza itself because they have fairly unsophisticated technology. Um, What's more than that, though, uh, is, you know, the Gaza Ministry of Health, which everyone should take with uh, a gargantuan grain of salt Mm -hmm. because it's literally run by Hamas. But I think as of this morning, they reported that there were, I think, 219 or 220 or something like that um, Palestinian casualties in in this most recent flare up. Israel claims that I think 160 um, of that number—and by the way, that top-line number is almost surely smaller because, again, this is a terrorist organization giving you propaganda—israel uh, claims that 160, I think, are are, are Hamas militants. Um, the, the, the Israel Defense Forces, uh, Israel's military, has gotten shockingly good um, at, at moral warfare. Um, starting, in, starting in 2014, the last kind of full-scale Israel-Hamas war, they started this very kind of intricate system where they would drop leaflets. They would call phones in buildings telling civilians, you need to evacuate right now because in this building where you live, tragically, are terrorists. And we need to take out the people that are trying to kill our civilians. So they do this all the time here. But the media, the the depravity of large swaths, the overwhelming majority of the mainstream media, the Associated Press story, sue is one of the most insane stories that I have seen in years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is Bat crap crazy, frankly, Um, because how can you be a global wire service dedicated to reporting and not know if you take them at their word that you are literally sharing an office with terrorists? I mean, I don't believe them for a second. No sane person should believe them for a second here. I want to know if they were paying rent to Hamas. Um, But it's really sad. I mean, the media, you know, which obviously at this point is just uh, an offshoot of the the Democratic Party. It's kind of the Democrat media complex, Andrew Breitbart called it. The, The media has clearly taken a side in this battle. I really do worry um, that is going to kind of cause the American people over the long run to, to sour on Israel. I think we're starting to see it, but um, you know, I, I'm proud to say that at least in my personal capacity uh, at the Newsweek opinion page, I'm doing doing what, what little I can to try and give Americans the actual perspective.
0: Yeah, and that's really really important. Um, uh, on the AP story, which I, you're right, is one of the most incredible stories you've ever seen. In fact, that you know, there's been reporting uh, of, of rockets being launched right next to their building, and they didn't put it in the reporting that Hamas came in and threatened AP employees that they, they AP didn't report that. Uh, it really, it really is fascinating. And and looking at the way this broke down it seems to me that Israel is saying we have the smoking gun. We've shown it to the U.S. government and the U.S. government, even in the Biden administration, seemingly has come out and said, well, yeah, kind of basically they got it. They got this one like this did happen at this building. Is is that what we should take from this? Because we haven't seen the an AOC type reaction from the Biden administration yet.
1: Correct. So the Biden administration um, they have not been ideal. Um, you have to imagine that if a similar kind of flare up had happened under Trump, you know, he would basically release a statement saying, you know, Israel is our ally, they have our full support to take care of this yes. terrible problem, period. End of story. There mm-hmm. would be no But there would be no both sidesism. There would be no calling for an end of uh, of uh, no no calling for a ceasefire, restraint, anything like that. So Biden has not been ideal from that perspective. Uh, I mean, you know, in kind of calling for a restraint, lean to a ceasefire earlier today, he effectively echoed the Hamas talking point because Hamas is the one that's getting crushed and is calling for a ceasefire right now. But having said that. Yes. Uh, Tony Blinken says that, that you know, that he saw kind of this this smoking gun and the fact that they have not you know condemned or come out against the IDF, against Israel, says all you need to know. I mean, it says that their, that their intelligence was totally legit. Right. Um, so the Biden administration has not been truly, truly horrible. I mean, they've it's a It's a very low standard. I, I, I do think Obama probably would have been worse. Right. If this had happened under under his watch. But, you know, it's very easy to see where the momentum in in the Democratic Party is heading, of course. I mean, you know, we saw that embrace between Joe Biden and Rashida Tlaib in Michigan uh, earlier today or yesterday, whenever that was. And, uh, you know, God knows what she's telling him about Israel and all the allegedly terrible things that she says they're doing. So it's, it's very easy to see where the momentum, the locus of the center of gravity, so to speak, of the Democratic Party is. And it's not in a healthy place. But as of today, Yes, Joe Biden has not been terrible off of that very low baseline.
0: I do like the fact that he kept calling her Rashid. I don't know for some reason that made me that made me happy. Um, so I, looking at this issue, we talk about this stuff all the time, Josh. Like there's uh, there's a lot of issues we talk about. Like, for example, I can see the left wing case for higher taxes. I don't agree with it. I don't think it works. I kind of understand it, though. Right. Like, you know, I mean, I think I don't think it's it's a workable model, but I get what they're going after in theory. Right. I have a tough time even seeing the other side of the Israeli-Palestinian debate and why anyone here in America embraces the Palestinian side of this. And I keep coming back as I go through the history, many, many back and forth points that might, you might want to change. But this withdrawal in 2005 that is Israel did, in retrospect, seems to me to be a really big mistake. Do I have that right?
1: Yes. Um, so uh, it, it's remarkable that Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza in 2005. It was done under the prime minister leadership of Ariel Sharon, who kind of made his entire career as a public statesman in Israel as a hawk. Um, for decades, he was a member of the uh, of, uh, Likud, which is Israel's kind of a right wing party. That's what Netanyahu is a is a member of to this day. And it was kind of a remarkable about-face. And, uh, you know, in 2005, Israel went into Gaza. They forcibly uprooted uh, Israeli Jews living there. They literally kind of uh, uh, effectively knocked down synagogues. Um, it, it, there were some very sad, sorry images of this, actually, if you go back and look in the image history. Um, it was not a pretty visual. It was like literally Israeli tanks physically uprooting Jews and synagogues. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the the idea at the time was to give the Palestinians a chance to kind of build uh, what was then marketed as a, as, as a Singapore in the Mediterranean because Gaza is right there in the Mediterranean. Beautiful, beautiful beachfront property. You know, they could have built hotels. They could have built a beautiful boardwalk. And instead, obviously, what happens? Well, they democratically – they literally democratically elect an internationally recognized terrorist group, Hamas. <laughs> then Hamas then Hamas defeats Fatah, the other kind of Palestinian uh, authority rival, uh, in a very bloody civil war the year later. And then within two years, they start their first full-scale war against Israel in 2008. So – Look, um, it was an experiment. I think uh, Israel was trying to kind of show to the world uh, that it was a good faith gesture and not that it had to do that. It had really already demonstrated that by making full two state offers on numerous occasions. But it tried to do that again. It backfired horrifically. There's no other way to say it. Um, and the problem in Gaza right now, there is genuinely no good solution here um, because – you know i look I, from my from my perspective I, you know as a as a zionist as a supporter of israel sitting here in the us uh, i i i do support uh, israel kind of uh, an extended land invasion to try and go in and kind of extirpate or root out hamas one by one but i recognize that there are serious 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 downside risks to that namely that this is, again, there's a population that democratically elected Hamas. So it's not at all clear that even if you get rid of Hamas, what the next government would look like and that it would be any better whatsoever. Um, in fact, going to uh, the West Bank, to the Palestinian Authority's jurisdiction, Mahmoud Abbas, who's in the 16th year of his uh, four year term over there, he recently canceled Palestinian elections there yet again because his Fatah party, polling would reliably show, would lose to Hamas. So it's a very radicalized populace. Um, Israel cannot just simply re-annex it for any number of reasons. Um, So it's a very, very, very difficult scenario there. Um, I unfortunately don't see a clear path forward, but at a bare minimum, a ceasefire right now uh, would be a bad move. Uh, It it, it would be a de facto victory for Hamas in this war.
0: Well, I will say, uh, just a quick tip for any country out there uh, looking to flourish, don't elect Hamas. It's just, uh, it's just a little quick advice, and it's one I think you should try to follow no matter where you are in the world. Josh Hammer, opinion editor at Newsweek and co-host of their The Debate podcast. It's new, check it out, make sure to subscribe to it. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jim. So Mayor Lori Lightfoot um, who is one of the strangest looking people I've ever seen in my entire life. She is made an, she's made a strange announcement uh, that she's going to pick the interviews she does based on skin color. Only people of color will be allowed to interview her going forward. Now, there are a lot of things to say about this. Number one is something we say here very often. You should never in your entire life ever make a decision based on someone's skin color, ever. It's a basic rule of thumb here on Stew Does America. Beyond that, it also appears to be illegal. I don't think a public official, an elected official can outwardly discriminate on the basis of skin color. That's not something that is allowed anymore. Uh, thankfully, by the way, I'm glad that that rule went away a long time ago. So Lori thinks she can do it. We'll see how that goes. She will clearly get sued. Uh, all, all, uh, you know, tons of journalists are, are speaking up about this. I mean, you know, I mean, again, white journalists will be like, "Oh yes, of course, critical race theory is very important." And we, I can't believe the, you believe the Republicans are pouncing on critical race theory. Wait, it's affecting my interviews. Yeah. <laughs> this has got to stop. So anyway, that's uh, going on in Chicago. Chris, this one is unbelievable. Chris Cuomo, the CNN anchor, participated in strategy calls as to how to deal with the media in regards to the sexual harassment allegations against his brother, his dumb brother, the America's dumbest mobster governor, Andrew Cuomo, who, by the way, is awful. Oh wait, wait a minute. I do want to do the Chris Cuomo story, and I don't have. There we go. Andrew Cuomo was awful. Chris Cuomo was worse. Both of them followed by com. So, and, I, and I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go on my typical lengthy Cuomo rant. I already gave you one of those this week. But let me at least give you this. CNN. I worked there. I worked in the building. It was always the left leaning news organization. That's what it was. It's always been that. You've known it forever. I mean, Rush used to call it the Clinton News Network in like the 1990s. It's not a surprise that they're left wing. But there was a time in which they had enough integrity to stop this nonsense from happening. I will tell you, I know a lot of people at CNN, even to this day. Some of the people who I used to work with back in the day are still there. There are legitimately, and I mean this sincerely, legitimately really good people who work at CNN. But the way they have handled this with Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo is despicable. It is among the most it is a journalistic abortion. The whole company at this point seems to be in on this nonsense with very few uh, public exceptions. I know behind the scenes, there's a lot of pushback and a lot of anger about this. But so far, they're holding the line. And for whatever reason, Uh, once again giving a BS excuse about uh, the Cuomo uh, situation. This time they say Chris has not been involved in CNN's extensive coverage of the allegations against Governor Cuomo on air or behind the scenes. Well, first he was because... He was advising Andrew Cuomo, but see, in part because, as he said on the show, he could never be objective, but also because he often serves as a sounding board for his brother. However, it was inappropriate to engage in conversations that included members of the governor's staff, which Chris acknowledges he will not participate in such conversations going forward. The network said Cuomo will not be disciplined. Look, as long as this is the news story, Chris Cuomo should not be on the air. He's, he's basically the press representative of the, a guy who is a central figure in the day-to-day news in the United States of America. A man, by the way, who is still the lead guy, as far as governors go, for Biden's COVID response. This is not just some sideline issue. But CNN is showing the integrity level of zilch on this one. And I don't expect it to change. Back in a second. Did you know the average American? The average has 97 points they could add to their credit score, but no idea how to get them. Now, of course they don't know how to get them. Who the heck is sitting around thinking about how to raise their credit score, you know, when you go in the internal analysis of the algorithm? I don't do that, do you do that? Well, if you happen to be from ScoreMaster, that is what you do. They've cracked the code on how to do this. They can add 97 points to your credit score. In fact, we've seen, I think one of Pat Gray's listeners uh, got like 140 points. 140 points added to your credit score, that's massive. That's a huge difference. If you happen to be buying a house or a car or you, you know whatever you're doing, um, refinancing a home, whatever it is, uh, that is uh, really a huge difference and that happens from ScoreMaster. Uh, ScoreMaster.com is the place to go. If you go to ScoreMaster.com, uh, you can uh, get the uh, plus points that they have for you. Show you exactly how many you can get, how long it will take you to get them. Go to scoremaster.com stew. Scoremaster.com stew. Don't forget the slash stew part of the address because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Scoremaster.com stew. As I briefly mentioned earlier, today's a very important day. I want to wish a happy birthday to my lovely wife, there she is as a child, happy birthday, honey. Congratulations on yet another incredible year with me. I will say, uh, you you know—you kind of might be thinking to yourself, wow, what a great husband uh, Stu is. And you're thinking, taking time out of this you know, national show to wish his wife a happy birthday. But I, I should point out, I got this text message earlier today. Uh, quote, I'm going to need you to wish me a happy birthday on your TV show tonight. I'm trying to get past 14,900 followers, and if you give me a shout out, that'll get me there. Please and thank you. From my wife today. So apparently, go to her Instagram page, at Lisa Page Made Me Do It, and follow her so that I don't get punished for not bringing the goods home, I guess. We have to get to this new round number, which is apparently very important. I love you, honey. Happy birthday, and I, will, I, I can say this because she probably isn't watching. For your birthday, I've got you an Andrew Cuomo is Awful mug and a Chris Cuomo is worse mug. <laughs> yes, that's the kind of guy I am. Um, now, you'll have to, of course, purchase it, but it's AndrewCuomoisAwful.com or Chris Cuomo is worse.com. You can go to either one. It's easy, honey. Happy birthday. Drink up.